You're listening to the Writers Off The Page podcast. Here's your host, writer, reader, journalist, and lover of soy latte, Sinead Maripodi. Hello everyone, and thanks for joining me for Writers Off The Page, where I sit down with authors to find out the story behind their stories and their top tips for getting published. With almost 40 novels to her name, Fiona McIntosh is an internationally best-selling author for adults and children. She built a career in PR and marketing before becoming a full-time novelist, most well-known for her historical dramas. Fiona's latest novel, The Spy's Wife, has recently hit the shelves, and I'm so pleased to welcome her here today. Fiona McIntosh, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. Now, take me back to the very beginning. What got you interested in writing to start with? Well, I, I actually think it was a, a midlife crisis. Um, I, I came to this very late. I had no aspirations to be a writer, but I was 39 and staring down the barrel of turning 40. And I was a mother and I was working my, my our own business, but I was sort of in a support, more supportive role to my husband. It was very much his, his concern. And I was beginning to feel that I was disappearing and uh, remembering all those great ambitions from childhood, I decided, no, this can't happen. I need to do something just for me. It's really selfish. And I lined up all the things I could possibly do. And the one that felt the most dangerous um, was having a go at writing a book. And I don't know why that came even into the lineup, because as I said, never aspired to it. Um, so it was but I thought, something yeah. that in the past you thought, oh, I might write a book one day, I've got this story no. brewing? No, no, I'd, I was reading a lot more. Suddenly, because I was a mother to these young children and I often sat in the nursery whilst they were going to sleep and I'd read quietly and not give them any eye contact. So I was devouring a lot of fiction at this stage and um, just enjoying it and getting completely captivated by the spellbinding ability of authors to just transport you and to really build a world around you as the reader so that you escape with them and you know you began to really care about characters and worry for them and I thought it was quite a a magic trick to pull off you know and so I had it in my mind that I, I reckon I can do this you know and so I realized that I, I needed a guide. I couldn't just sit down and write a book. I needed someone to say to me, because I'm a bit like that. I never attack something unless I think I can do it. And so I wanted to do it to the best of my ability. And I thought, do a course and, and sort of just get some structure to how you approach this. And I luckily managed to get in on a course with Bryce Courtney for a week in Hobart and off I went and changed my life. I came back and I thought, yeah, I'm actually already a writer, I think. I just haven't written the book. And so I wrote a book really quickly. And um, it was a fairy tale. You know, HarperCollins said, can you write three of these? And I said, yeah. You know, and they said, right, well, we'll publish this next year. And it, I was just, I was from this wannabe to this, you know, contracted author in the space of, honestly, it would have been less than a month. So I know everyone out there is going to hate me for saying that, but that's, <laughs> You know, that's just God, how it was. Could you be a better review for Bryce Courtney's course back in the day? I mean, look at this author. She came on with me and now she's a published writer in this amount well, of time. Well, that's what he did. He kept doing that. <laughs> he had me visit now and then and say, here, look, look what can happen. And when he was dying, actually, when he was on his last course, he made me come and help him run it. 
And when we'd finished, he said, Fiona, just take the mantle, you know, just take it, take it on and do it for me. Keep this going, help other writers. And so I thought I'd run one, you know, he knew I was setting up to run one and I wanted him to know that I'd followed through and I hadn't let him down. But one led to two, led to three, and we've probably done about 20 now. And we've got 400 writers in the masterclass community. And we've got probably 25 with the majors and we've probably got 60 or more who've published their own or with smaller publishers or published their own. So, you know, and we've had just in the last year, five, six on debut, you know, with major publishers. I mean, the HarperCollins and the Penguins and the Simon and & Schuster's and, you know, it's brilliant. It's amazing. Brilliant. When you signed up to Bryce Courtney's course, did you go in with an idea? Had you dabbled at all before then or did you just go in clean slate just to learn the basics? I'd, I'd been reading a lot of fantasy fiction at that stage, really high quality. I'd curated it and decided I would only read the very, very best that was on offer. I was enjoying almost reliving a childhood thing because I used to read a lot of fairy stories when I was young and I wanted to fall back into that world. I was with new children and I was reading them a lot of fairy stories and I was sort of enjoying it myself for adults and realising, wow, it's good, isn't it, for adults? Um, so I had this idea bubbling away in my mind and I thought, you know, that would make a good story. And I began to fiddle with things, but with no purpose. But then I got this place in the course. And um, when Bryce asked me what I wanted to write, I wanted to write historical fiction. And he said, great, but you're not going to write it now. He said, you know, you're nowhere near ready to be writing historical fiction. And he just forbid me to try. Even after I told him my idea, he said, your idea for historical fiction is so good that I want you to wait until you're ready to do it or give it to me. And I said, no, because it's about my grandparents. And he said, then wait until you're ready. And I didn't know what that meant. That's like saying, how long is a piece of string? When do you know you're ready? So I wrote, I think I wrote 12 really big fantasy novels before I came to the realisation that, okay, I'm ready to write historical. And I knew exactly what he meant because I'd done my apprenticeship. I knew how to bolt together a story. I knew how to um, juggle a big cast. I knew how to make it blow out like that and then narrow down to bring it down to that cliffhanger ending for the next instalment of a trilogy. I knew how to, I'm just going to, I knew how to, um, you know, um, escalate the drama and drip feed the plot as it went along. I'd, I'd learned everything there was, I felt, in pulling together a decent story and now I wanted to put that into practice with historical. And so I wrote Fields of Gold and Penguin took me on and, and that's it. That's what I've been doing ever since, really. And well, uh, it, is, it is a fairy tale story. It is, as you said, that's, that's the way to put it. I've heard you mention before in previous interviews um, that you felt like you did, call it your apprenticeship as such, in the public mm. eye because it all did happen so quickly. Is that right? Yep, because you see, I'd never written, I'd never written anything creative since school days. And suddenly at 40, I was having a go at this fantasy novel. And so I wrote the manuscript, sent it to HarperCollins, Voyager, which was the worldwide publisher of really good fantasy. And all the best writers sat 
with Harper Collins at the time, and I wanted to be with them, you know, George R. R. Martin, Robin Hobb, you know, Guy Gabriel Kay, all these people. And so they published the very first novel I'd ever tried to write. And then they wanted the second volume, and then they wanted the third volume, and off we went after that. So I'd never had any quiet training. I just had to learn on the job. I hadn't 12 or 24 rejections in my bottom drawer. I simply had this one novel, then the next one, then the next one. So I had to keep learning. And I've actually kept that sort of trajectory going where I feel every single book I write is better than the last one, technically. It may not be, every, you know, the current one may not be everyone's favourite. They might love one that was written five years ago or something because it resonated with them. But technically, I think The Spy's Wife is better than The Champagne War. And I think technically the next one will be better than The Spy's Wife, you know. So um, because I never stop learning, you know, I just keep my apprenticeship is still. I feel I have that attitude that I'm still trying to strive to be better than the last book and I think that is um, a good that attitude just... to have like I think every writer you'd want to hope that they've got that attitude that they're not becoming complacent that their next novel has to be better than their last one to keep people interested and to pull them in and also to keep them interested you know it's very very important as a writer that you don't rest on your laurels because you're found out so fast how many times have I mean I know in my experience with reading someone I love it, you know, I devour them every year. And then suddenly something, you know, they they slack off somewhere and you think, oh, that was disappointing. That wasn't as good as, and then the next one isn't as disappointing. It's because they've reached a certain threshold of um, perhaps popularity and they sort of know, you know, hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of people are going to go out and buy that book anyway. It's got their name on it. People are going to go out and buy that book. And it's easy to get complacent. And I'm now at sort of 40 books and I refuse to be complacent. And I say this to the masterclass all the time, that every rejection you get makes you better and every manuscript you write makes you better, so long as you learn from the last one. And I feel that I, I will never say to myself, oh, well, last year it was such a winner that I just know I don't have to put quite the same effort. I feel I'm putting more effort into each book. I feel more is on the line with each book for me because I've now got a reputation to protect and people have an expectation of that big book at the end of the year coming from Fiona and it's historical and it's going to please a wide audience. Uh, it's more, It's uh, sometimes it's overwhelming, the anticipation, so you strive harder and I think that's really important. How do you deal with that pressure? Um, I have taught myself not to read reviews at all, uh, ever, because the good reviews, great, you know, you're going to feel great. But when you read a review from someone who thinks it's rubbish for whatever reason, more often than not, it's not rubbish. It rarely is rubbish, you know, but somebody is trolling or, you know, these keyboard warriors have an opportunity to just take you down um, and it could be just because you're popular and they're a struggling writer. Who knows what the reason? Whatever it is, I don't read reviews. I'm not interested in them. I'm interested in sales graphs. That's what um, sort of fuels me, how well we're going with sales and how happy my publisher is with the latest novel. And I try to say to myself, be better with this one. So I... 
while I feel the pressure of expectation, I just think do the very best you can, do more, research harder, be braver in your subject matter, um, you know, do that extra read through. Um, even though you hate editing, go through it for the 12th time and finesse it, you know. So I force myself to do those things and then I think I can deliver. And, that, and it, you know, the effort does deliver on the expectation. We have delivered. It's been, fast forward a few years from the start of your career and what, this is the 39th novel, The Spy's Wife, is probably, that right? Probably, yes, I think probably is. I, You know, I don't sort of sit there and count them up, but it has to be because I've actually written the next one and I'm working on the next one. So That's enormous, I, yeah. that many novels. It is enormous. Name. Yes, I'm a bit of an um, overachiever in that regard. <laughs> a good thing to overachieve. I hate deadline. I'm not someone who... I don't like being late. And one of the things that my publisher says, yeah, but you're always early. You deliver so early that, you know, you keep us on our toes. So before The Spy's Wife came out, I delivered next year's novel, you see. And, and she was like, oh, wait, how are we keeping up with you? And that's why that's I moved a problem into for them to have. <laughs> it's lovely. No, they're very happy. But they said, you know, just breathe now. But it's why I moved into crime writing, because I was writing fantasy so fast fantasies delivered in three volumes when you deliver them one at a time but I was delivering them so fast that the editor was saying Fiona you've got to slow down we cannot keep up with these manuscripts coming in so I said well I don't know how to do that and she said well write something else so juggle another genre at the same time so that's why I got into crime writing no other reason it was a very pragmatic decision to slow me down and she said write a crime we know you love it we know you love reading crime so just write a crime and we'll publish it for you. It was a real throwaway sort of, we'll publish it and no one cares sort of thing. And um, that's how it was. They published it and no one cared until many years later, because I loved the books, the crime books. And I said to Penguin, let's republish, you know, let's rejack it and republish those crimes. I think people will read them and love them. And they did. Um, you know, they just devoured them and we weren't ready for the response to the crimes from 10 years ago. And then I quickly had to write a number three book to sort of tie up some loose ends. And after that number three book, a global film company came to me and said, we want to option that world of your detective and we want to turn it into small screen. Um, so the world was ready for them and I was ready to start writing crime again. So um, yeah, I know it's a it's fairy tale. It's almost sickening. It's almost sickening. In Sorry, the best possible yes. way. <laughs> so tell me, The Spy's Wife is your latest. Yeah. I'll get you to yes. tell us a little bit about it. Well, it's a fish out of water story, which is my favourite kind of story. And it's the first time I've gone as adventurous as I have with the historicals. Usually I keep them in a nice tight drama that's escalating with tension and suspense for sure. And one of my signatures is to set them in far flung places. So that, that's my trademark. But this time, because I'm always striving to be different, I wanted to add a real sense of adventure for the heroine. Um, it's not often a female character gets to be, you know, this sort of James Bond kind of character. And, and that's who Evie must morph into she has to find it somewhere within herself so she's a fish out of water um, and it was fun to write essentially it's the story of a girl from a sleepy backwater 
who, for reasons um, that I don't want to spoil, is suddenly catapulted onto the European stage and lives suddenly depend on her ability to infiltrate Germany and find out something for Whitehall. And, you know, she shouldn't be there. She's got no skills um, other than being young um, and female traits of cunning and perhaps being very agile in her mind. Um, that's all she's got going for her. And uh, so she has to go in disguise. And it's really a brilliant story from an adventuresome point of view. Uh, and great for a girl to be doing all this, you know. Oh, definitely. That's it. what I was going to say. You've written such a fabulous character in Evie. Um, I love her tenacity and her bravery. And mm. I love that authors like you are now giving brave women a place in war stories where perhaps in the past they didn't have. Evie's voice is so strong. I have to ask, did, where did it come from? Um, I think Evie is an extension of perhaps the favourite book I've ever written, which is The Pearl Thief. Um, and she was a bit of an extension of Katerina, who is my favourite character ever. Um, but Evie's very different to uh, Katerina. Katerina was broken and damaged and super traumatised from an early age, and it's developed this cold, sort of brittle woman. And I love her to bits because she's so courageous at the moment when she needs to be and you don't know if she can be and she's amazing i think with evie she is just somebody who's always been protected and lived a quiet lifestyle and then is required to become this all singing all dancing spy essentially and um i think her her bravery and her tenacity is run out of fear actually i think evie is so frightened all the way through this book for herself, for others. Executions are on the end of this. If she is discovered to be doing what she's doing, there'll be no trial, there'll be no even questions. You'll be taken out of the back and shot. That's as simple as it would have been. And that would go for the people that she loves in the story. So um, her tenacity is driven by fear. So she fears every day of her life in this story and it makes her um, incredible, I think. And so she really just extended out of Katerina. I loved Katerina's character and I wanted to develop um, a different character based on Katerina. And I think Evie nails it, really. She does. So what's changed over the years? You talked about the speed that you can turn books out. How long does it take you? Is that like asking how long a piece of string is? <laughs> No, no, it's not. It's a very, um, it's a very deliberate thing for me. So um, anyone who comes to my masterclass knows that I work to a, what I call a word equation, which I set up at the beginning, and it drives me. And I know exactly when I start the book, I know to the day when I'll finish it. Unless something catastrophic happens in between, I will finish on the day I've set myself. So I can, I used to be able to just write a book without any fuss within 12 weeks. Wow. But now I'm, yeah, I'm a bit kinder to myself and I give myself probably between 16 and 20 weeks, depending on what's going on in my life. Um, and I think that's a lot of time. Um, but what has changed is not only giving myself more time. Each of these historical novels takes two years. So there's two years you know, there's probably 15 to 16 months of pure research before I sit down and start writing. And so a lot of that involves sounds, travel, doesn't it? 
Yes, it does. So although it sounds like it's a very fast process, I'm now researching the 2024 novel, the early 2024, no I mean, early research, but I'm getting knee deep into the 2023 research right now. So I have to, I have to be doing all that research so that by, um, you know, March, April next year, I'm writing the 2023 book in order to deliver it um, by around October next year. So I'm working, yeah, a good two years out. So what's changed is I'm working further and further out because it depends how much travel I have to do. And the thing is I'm doing more and more. So for example, whereas I used to do one trip and go and gather up everything I need and come back and then um, write that novel, I am finding now um, the books require me to do maybe two, three trips because I'm writing in layers. So that's the difference for me. Um, I now come home, write the arc of the story because I don't plot. That's the other thing. I have no plan. I don't even know the story. You know, I don't know the beginning, middle or end of the story. I know roughly the character I'm working with, the main character, and I've got no idea what's going to happen to her. I don't even know the true arc of the story. Sometimes I have to go and find the story you know, and The Pearl Thief was one of those great ones where I just arrived in Prague. I knew it was going to be starting in Prague and I hoped that a story would find me. And it did. It was, that's why I love that book. So much of that book was gunslingy and amazing. I didn't know my character, my story or anything. And she came and found me in Prague. Anyway, so what I'm doing now is I write in layers. So the first is just get the arc of the story down and then look at it and think, what else do you need in there? Okay, we need some more locations. Let's go back into Yorkshire. Let's go back to France and find some of those locations. What Now we look at second, third draft, what's needed? We need some texture and richness here. We need richness of the world. Let's go and find some, let's go back again, and now let's interview some people and find out. So although it sounds like a marvelous way to travel the world, <laughs> um, I am working, I am working. It's a very expensive way to do it, but it does, that's why the Champagne War was as rich in its tapestry, but also the detail of that tapestry is, it's so rich and it's so colourful, whether you're in the trench with Charlie or you're learning how to make champagne, um, you know, it's a very rich story because I made four trips into Epinay just to get that so very right. I didn't have that luxury with the spy's wife, unfortunately, because of COVID. So um, I was very glad that I had been able to do one trip into Yorkshire in 2019 and gather that up. And then I was able to do a trip to Germany in March 2020 and then make a dash for home before the doors slammed closed. And that's how it's been ever since. So terrifying. Where were you in terms of... Um in your writing process of The Spy's Wife when you came back from Germany in 2020? Um, had you started writing yet? No, hadn't started, no. It was the first one, you see, I'd just got the first load of information. So I knew that's all I was going to get. I could see that, you know, the world was in meltdown. We weren't going anywhere. So that's the first time I've been faced with that. But I thought, look, I used to write books based on one trip. And I knew I had a lot of material and I'd done a few extra things like I'd even gone into Lithuania thinking just in case I need to go into Eastern Europe with the story. I'd gone to Nuremberg just in case I wanted to add a rally, one of Hitler's rallies in the Nazi rallies. 
I didn't need Lithuania or Nuremberg in the story. As it turned out, I had enough material based on um, Stuttgart, Munich, Berlin, London, Paris, and Yorkshire. So I do, I do gather up loads of information with each trip. So although people think I'm sitting on a Paris sidewalk and sort of, <laughs> you know, smoking and sipping absinthe, I'm actually really pounding pavements and gathering information every day because it's expensive to be on the ground in Europe. It really is. So when I go for books, I go for books. I'm not sightseeing. I'm not having downtime. I'm just working. When you say that you're gathering information, are you a note taker, photos? How do you keep it fresh in your mind? I don't take notes. I don't take a lot of notes. I'm a great believer in the stuff that's really resonating with me is the stuff that will stick. And it will, my, my mind will deliver that back up to me when I'm ready to write. But I do like to take photographs because they, um, for me, I'm very visual and they bring a world uh, alive for me. So I do take a lot of photographs um, and, and that is all I need, just the photographs. But no, I don't like taking notes. I think it's very, if I'm interviewing someone, for example, the minute you get out a notebook, they clam up. Or if you say, can I record you? They clam up. But if you just have a cup of coffee with them and listen, they're much more open with you about life under German occupation or, you know, whatever it is that they're telling you about. So because they don't think that maybe you'll retain as much information as they're sharing. <laughs> and when it becomes social, because you're chatting and it becomes a conversation, not a sort of a, an outpouring of information, it's just a conversation, it feels more relaxing for that person. Um, and I feel that they're revealing a lot more. So no, I don't take notes. You'll never see me, you know, struggling with a notebook. Um, never. I just listen. I listen very well these days. So you mentioned that you are currently doing research for 2023. Is that right? That Mostly, yeah. What does research look like to now? Poke. Mm. Um, what does the research look like? Yeah, now lots that you can't books. travel. Yeah. Uh, lots of books first. This is my modus operandi. Lots of books about my subject. Lots of books about my era. Lots of books about maybe the times and the social norms of the day because I'm always writing back in time and I've got to build a world around the reader. So it's very important I get the atmosphere right. So I do a lot of reading and when I finish reading, I then start galloping around wherever I can. Now, because they have to be Australian based, um, I will be going into state and beginning to do my, you know, my physical location stuff in Australia because I can't get overseas. So, um, so that's what it looks like by sort of, I would say by around April next year, I'll start or even earlier March, maybe I'll start doing trips interstate if we can, and I'll start physically gathering the kind of photographic material I need. Um, and then I'll start writing from about April, April, May. You mentioned you work to a word count goal and so you work that out for each book at the start of the book, is that right? Yes, it's not a consistent... Book, no, 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 it's not. Each book is different because each year is different and the pressures on me are different each year. Got a new puppy, that's going to change life. <laughs> got, a, got a son's wedding coming, that's going to change life. It just, you know, life does get in the way of your best laid plans. So I have to be good to myself within there and not be unrealistic. I'm always saying to masterclasses, 
don't put unnecessary pressure on yourself because it will weigh you down and you'll explode. And then you'll think, I can't do this. Whereas for me, I leave myself enough room that if something happens, you know, someone's sick or I need to put more effort into a particular area, I've got a bit of fat there and I can, you know, I can play with it and say, oh, I can catch up. For example, I'm doing, um, I'm essentially on tour right now for The Spy's Wife, which is, um, you know, it's a, a full month or more of just relentless interviews or um, appearances and this sort of thing. Well, you can't write around that. You need, writing needs to be consistent and measured and disciplined and all those things. So I'm not bothering about it. I'm just letting it be. And I will, I've given myself that month. Don't worry about it. Pick it up at the start of December and off you go again. So yes, it does change. And for example, next year I have to write two books. So each book will have a bit more time allowed for it because I'll be juggling two books. How strict are you? Never done before, Mm. did you say? I've never written two books at once, but I will have to next year because of this uh, screen deal. They're waiting for this fourth book. Film, film land or television land is waiting <laughs> for this book. So I've got to write the crime, but my publisher is waiting for my next, you know, I've got a contract to deliver the new historical. So they're going to have to go hand in hand. How strict are you with that daily word count? Do you make sure you meet it each day? Super strict. Yeah, super strict. It, I meet it every day without fail. Yeah, and some days are easy and some days are harder. Um, but I don't leave my, uh, I've got a bouncy stool, as you can see. <laughs> I bounce on my stool when the days are hard and I think and I think and I think and I, why is it so hard today when it wasn't so hard a couple of days ago? And that's just writing for you. That's how storytelling goes. And you've got to accept that there are days when you can be, you can write 1,500 words in an hour and you think, how does that happen? And then another day, those 1,500 words just take hours for some reason. They'll take hours because they're harder, you know, because you're not, you don't perhaps have the inspiration. What I don't do, and this is where maybe lots of new writers go wrong, is I don't read what I wrote yesterday because that's an easy trap to fall into. And you, you know, you might read what you wrote yesterday and think, oh, this is wonderful. You know, you get carried away with your own brilliance or you think this is rubbish and you begin tinkering and trashing and so you're never pushing the story forwards you see I never do that I just think those were yesterday's words I don't care what they look like and I'm not thinking about tomorrow's words because they're coming I just think about today's words today's 1500 or 2000 or 1000 whichever I've set for myself that's all I care about today's words and when they're done I stop I stop in the middle of a sentence I just stop Um, because I think tomorrow I love the idea but I've stopped in the middle of a sentence and I will pick it up from there Um, and I may have forgotten where I was headed with it I see I'm a gunslinger (laughs) I love all that uncertainty it keeps me sharp you know I don't make it easy for myself because if you make it too easy you get too comfy you know for me that's where the potholes wait you see, so I keep myself sharp by staying on the back foot all the time. I'm going to ask this question, and I dare say your response now at the 39th novel would be would, would have been a bit different if I asked you back at the first or second novel. If you're not reading what you've written and you're working always to 
a word count. Do you ever, when you get to that stage where you go back to read that first draft, are there ever areas where you're like, oh, fucking tell I was really forcing it out there. That's not ideal, that whole section. Um, um, do I do that? There are times when I don't have a very good sense of my own work. I leave that to an editor and I've got a good editorial team now who work with me and they see the first draft. They don't need me to finesse it or refine it or anything. They just want it as it's come out. Do you so read it before it goes I, to them? No. Sorry to jump in. I had to ask. No. I, that's, I see. I keep myself on the back foot. I love the danger. I, I like jumping off the cliff. And my editor's always waiting. She said, come on, just send it, send it, because I've said, finished. And she said, hit send. And I do. And then it's a race is on to see who can read it first. So she and I are both reading it at the same time. I go, and I do that. I go, oh, I can make that better. That definitely, you know, that wasn't great. But most of the time, I'm really surprised that there is this great story that's been, you know, coming out behind me. It's been, it's just been flowing out and I haven't been focused on it and I haven't been thinking about it. I've just been going forwards and I'm always surprised and delighted that my editor comes back and says, don't know what you were worried about. It's fabulous. And now we go into the structural stuff and she'll say, okay, so what I think is this. So it's, you know, confident that comes with a lot more confidence. But I've been doing that since day one. I really have been doing that since day one. I've never read my work back, never, because it feels dangerous and I quite like that. I'm not an extreme, I don't search out extreme sports or anything, but this is my extreme uh, way. Is that Writing on the edge. Writing on the edge, yes, <laughs> on the edge, you know, hanging on by your fingernails. I quite enjoy it. Wow. So I guess now with your masterclasses, when you're teaching, I guess, the next generation of writers, are you, I guess, what importance do you place on them with their first drafts and their editing process before they submit? Okay. It's do as I say, not as I do, because <laughs> you're not me. And very few people, very few writers would say what Fiona does is comfortable or fun or desirable. Most writers would say, I want nothing to do with that method. The only thing I say to them is, if you're a serious plotter, serious plotter, you end up just getting involved in your own plot and you forget to write the book. The great thing about being me is that I don't bother with all of that. I just write the book. The book is always written and it's written quickly, and then I've got something to work with. So I'm always trying to get the plotters to come more towards my way of doing things, and I bring them maybe to the middle. And I say to the people who are a lot like me, don't be like me, because it's a dangerous way to exist, and you haven't got a contract. You know, I've got a publisher, and I'm in a safe zone to make a catastrophic error if I, had, if I did. So you need to come back and try and meet the plotters somewhere in the middle. And if they can all sit somewhere in that lovely middle of knowing enough about their characters and their story to set out on the journey without panicking that they don't know everything about it, that's where I need them to be. Also, my advice always to them is, yeah, you have got to edit. But you do the edit 
when you've finished. So you've got to get this skeleton out. You've got to. You cannot edit and tinker until you have a story. How do you know the shape of your story? How do you know what your characters are going to do? Um, you know, how, how can you actually visualize all the scope of the story until you've got it in front of you. So you need that in front of you and then you need to go back and start refining and finessing and cutting away all the fat because that's what editing is about. It's about losing words, lose, lose, lose words. And then you need to come down to a lovely sort of 100,000 words or go up to a lovely 100,000 words. People who say to me, oh, I'm really pleased I've got 80,000 words. I always say, no, it's not enough. You know, it's just not enough. No publisher wants an 80,000K book because that looks like that and no one's going to pay $25 for it. But if it's 100,000 words, it suddenly looks like it's got some value, got some, you know. So, but then there are the extremists who maybe write 150,000 words and I have to say to them, no one wants a book that big that's going to break their wrists, you know, to read. They just don't want it. So you've got to bring it back down, come to that 100,000, 110,000. It's a, it's a lovely perfect size, knowing you're probably going to lose, I don't know, 30,000 words in the edit, and you're going to have to rewrite back, you know, about 25,000 words to get to that perfect, that very comfortable. There's nothing, there's nothing prescriptive, but there are comfortable zones to be in um, with certain genres, particularly. Um, so, yeah, my advice to them is, yes, you will edit, you will read it, but you'll wear that editor's hat um, after you've done your first draft. Until then, you're a writer, not an editor. So don't fiddle-faddle. Just get on with it. That might be it. But what is, is there another big, I call it a mistake, but something that you commonly see aspiring writers do that yes, you yes, advise yes. against? Ugh, they start too far out. They start over here. <laughs> we need to start here. I'm always saying to them, why are we here? Why are we learning about, you know, all this boring stuff about her waking up, oh, waking with a start, oh, what was that dream about? You know, all this sort of typical stuff that new writers do. And why do I have to share her shower? Why do I have to know she's got pink bath towels? Why? Is it important? Why? It doesn't feel important as I'm reading it. But you know, her throat slit on page four. Why wouldn't you just have her throat slit on page one? Or she's going to slit someone's throat. Or she's going to have a car crash. Or she's going to do something. There is where it starts. Over there, not over here. And that is the bleat of all publishers. New writers start way out. Because what they're trying to do is write themselves up to where they want to go, you see. And that's just the trait of new writers. They all do it. I did it, everyone will do it. You sort of have to write yourself into it. And, um, but what you have to do is recognize that the beginning of the book is right over here and not there where you've begun. And you've got to learn, just trash all of that and start here. Um, that is the biggest mistake they all make. That and being boring. I'm sorry, <laughs> a lot of new writers write very boring stuff and they don't realize that what, is required for commercial fiction is drama and action and tension and suspense. It's not dreary day-to-day -day stuff, which is what a lot of new writers make the mistake of doing. Dreary day-to-day, -day, we're not interested in it. We're not going to pay $25 or $30 
to watch our own lives unraveling, you know, even though someone may write a domestic, a very domestic story, the really great writers of that domestic story, you'll find there's a frisson, there's something happening, you can feel it coming, you can feel it bubbling through those words that something's about to happen and it happens quite quickly. But it's not, it might feel like it's everyday stuff, but something's coming at you. Um, and new writers have to know, learn how to do that, you know, um, and not just play with the boring stuff. Is that something that you can teach people? Yes, if you smack them around enough, you can. <laughs> yeah, you can. If you're an ogre like me, who calls it very straight, um, yeah, I can show them. Um, and uh, I think the other thing that a lot of people make a mistake about is they write too young, you know. They sort of have to understand if you're writing for adults, you've got to write a really mature story. Even if the adult is 25 and hasn't lived a long life yet, look at what we all watch on television. You can't write, you know, these very sort of prim and proper kind of stories unless you're going to write a prim and proper story set in the 1930s and go sort of cosy detective sort of thing. But if you want to write a contemporary story for a contemporary adult audience, you, you know, it's very hard to write something that doesn't have some um, very mature themes in it, you know. And it doesn't have to have blood and guts or high-octane action. It's just got to be able to grab the mature reader by the throat. Mature being your age group. I'm not talking about someone who's 75. I'm talking about, you know, someone who is capable of accepting that, you know, there might be violence in this or there might be, um, you know, sort of suspense or intrigue. Grow it up. Don't write too young, you know. Amazing. So don't write young. Don't be boring. Get to the point quickly. Get to the point. <laughs> oh, very good. Somewhere important. Don't, please, yeah, don't be boring. It's all about don't be boring, don't be dull. Don't bore me. Don't bore the publisher. They're going to go like this. Flick, flick, flick. Yeah, boring. Flick, flick. That's how, I mean, they sing hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts. So whatever has to jump out, has to jump out of them. They go, oh, this is interesting. You know, this is fresh. This feels new. So it doesn't matter if you're writing the same old, same old, because there are only 17 storylines or something in the world, so they tell me. But it's got to be packaged in a way that feels fresh. So your character has to feel you know, fresh and original, um, you know, and the sort of the girl going back to the small country town to look after her parents or the deceased estate and meets up with the old boyfriend. I mean, stop. It's been done to death. Stop. Something fresh, please, you know. Publishers are just saying, oh, no, not again. Not the city going to the small town. Not again, please, you know. I mean, repackage it then, find a different reason. Maybe she's going back because she's standing for mayor or something like that, but not this sort of, you know, um, fabulous girl in the city suddenly being dragged back. I mean, I'm getting into areas. I see it over and again in the masterclass. I see it coming through and then something fresh comes through and you get very excited and I realise what it must be like to be a publisher to read out of, you know, 20 manuscripts, three or four that are just so fresh and they've got you absolutely intrigued and you want to know what happens next, 
you know, I am on the phone to a publisher straight away and saying, I've got one. Brilliant. I'll send it through to you as soon as I can, you know, helpless. <laughs> Amazing. Fiona, I could pick your brain all day and go into more and more about your details. We didn't even <laughs> talk about Rosie the puppy. She was going to carry us for Hi. a while. But I hope, all right. <laughs> I hope she doesn't interfere with your current research and upcoming writing. No, she'll, she'll inspire me, I think. It's lovely. Dogs are very good for the human soul, so uh, she'll <laughs> inspire me. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today. Fiona McIntosh and The Spy's Wife is out now. And thank you for listening to the Writers of the Page podcast. Make sure you check out the back catalogue and while you're there, I'd love it if you left a rating or review. It helps other people discover the podcast. If there's an author you want me to chat to or you just want to say hi, hit me up on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter at Shanae Maripodi. That's C-H-E-N-E-E. Thanks for listening. Bye.